Welcome to Exaltation. This is Father David Masterson bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true. Our scripture reading today is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing will be impossible for them to accomplish. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Genesis, as you know, is the book of origins, the book of beginnings. That's what the word Genesis means. It is an amazing revelation by God, written by Moses to give an account of the origin of all things. There is the origin of creation, the origin of mankind, of marriage, and of the family in chapters 1 and 2. There is the origin of sin, guilt, redemption, and forgiveness in chapter 3. There is the origin of culture and civilization and music in chapter 4. There is the origin of nations and languages in chapter 11, what we will talk about today. Then we arrive at chapter 12 and come to Abram and the origin of the chosen people through whom the word of God and the Savior of the world will come. From chapter 12 forward, through the entire Old Testament, the focus will be on Israel, the chosen people of God. Then in the New Testament, Israel, having failed to fulfill her responsibility as the people of God, is temporarily set aside, and in the place of Israel, God establishes a new chosen people, made up of Jew and Gentile called the church. So from chapter 12 of Genesis onward, it's God's redemptive work in the world through Israel and through the church. But before we get to chapter 12, we have the origin of everything else which sets the stage for the work of redemption. In chapter 11, the structure of the text is very simple. It's a structure of reversal. In verses 1 to 4, man builds up what he wants. In verses 5, God steps in, and verses 6 to 8, God tears down what man has built up. 
Verses 1 to 4, the action of man. Verses 5 to 8, the action of God. Then verse 9 is a summary of the event by Moses. Let's look at verse 1. The whole earth used the same language and the same words. But this seems to contradict chapter 10, verse 5, which says, From these coastlands the nations were separated into their lands, every one according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. What is happening here is that Moses is explaining how the arrangement of chapter 10 came about by telling us the story of the dispersion of the people here in chapter 11. This is very common in the book of Genesis. Moses often goes outside chronological order to arrange his material thematically. The story is tightly constructed and it is packed full of meaning and significance. At this time, there were no barriers to communication, none at all. No barriers to unity. The literal Hebrew here in this verse is that the people had one lip and one set of words. And it came about as they journeyed eastward that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. The background to verse 2 is found in Genesis 10, 8 through 11. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod and he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Cana in the land of Shinar. Now listen. After the flood, we have only the family of Noah left on the earth. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Two of these sons, Ham and Japheth, partake of the wicked line of Cain, and only Shem becomes part of the godly line from which will come our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nimrod comes from the line of Ham, the ungodly seed. The name Nimrod is connected with the word rebel in Hebrew. Nimrod began to rule. He became mighty. He forced others to submit to him. Matthew Henry comments, He invaded his neighbor's rights and properties and persecuted innocent men. He ruled by tyranny over others, making men his own by force and violence. Nimrod was a wicked despot, a totalitarian dictator, he was an ancient Hitler, a Stalin, a Pol Pot, ruthless, evil murderers. The phrase before the Lord means in defiance of God and in contempt of his command. It is not a praiseworthy phrase, but a derogatory one. So we have Nimrod, a mighty tyrannical leader, wanting to make a name for himself and gathering men around him. Nimrod gains a following, and this band of men, as they move east, come to the vast plain of Shinar. On this plain, they stop the dispersion God commanded and decide to build a great city. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and tar for mortar. 
Then verse 4, And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Notice the emphasis in these verses. Let us make for ourselves a name. Let us build for ourselves. This is the arrogance of man in full display. This is man glorifying himself, seeking a name for himself. What is the proper role of man? The proper role of man is to give glory and honor and praise and majesty to the adoration of God's name alone. Man is constantly seeking to rob God of his majesty, his greatness, and his authority. He is constantly dragging God off the throne and trashing his glorious name. But God's will for human beings is not that we find our joy in being praised, but that we find our joy in knowing and praising him. His will is not that we find our security in cities or in taking a vaccine, but in God, whom we gladly obey. God must have the ascendancy. We must go down. God must go up. God will not be mocked, dear friends. Now contrast the posture of the godly men in the Old Testament like Isaiah and Daniel and the godly seekers after the Lord with Nimrod and his ancient globalists. We can imagine this tower being excitedly talked about as the ultimate achievement, very much like those who proudly speak of building back better and creating a better one-world economic system, or some of today's scientists who foolishly affirm that within 10 years there will be thousands of human beings on the planet Mars. The founder of the World Economic Forum claims that global reset is the greatest priority for mankind today. He stresses that mankind must experience crises so great as to provoke change throughout the world. This is the basic problem of human pride. Man wants to glorify and fortify himself by collective effort. There is a great continual cry for unity, for love, for togetherness, for oneness. Let's all be friends around the world. Let's lay down our weapons of war and hold hands in friendship and love. That sounds very virtuous and magnanimous, but unity must have a foundation in truth and holiness. And the only foundation that can be laid is Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus is himself the way, the truth, and the life. There can be no true unity unless we come together around the truth and holiness of the Lord Jesus. Notice that the humans say, come, let us, in verse 3 and 4, and God says, come, let us, in verse 7. God's singular comment trumps the repeated collective efforts of humans. What the humans fear most, being scattered abroad upon the face of the earth, is exactly what God accomplishes in the story. There's also a touch of irony here in that man designs to make a tower with its top in the heavens, but the Lord comes down 
even to see this massive city and the tower. There is also an important word play in the story. The name of the city Babel in the Hebrew is a play on the verb used for confusing or confounding. It is the confounding of the languages that happen here. And the name of the city Babel is the same term used of Babylon throughout the Bible. The very place where the Tower of Babel was built eventually became the great city of Babylon. Did you know that the city of Babylon was a hundred square miles? The ancient city of London was only 1.2 square miles. Ancient Babylon was a massive city almost a hundred times as large as ancient London. The walls were 350 feet high and 87 feet thick. One historian says that four horse chariots could pass each other on the top of the wall without falling off. Interspersed at exact lengths along the wall were 250 enormous towers reaching 450 feet high. This was an astonishing building feat accomplished in the year 2230 B.C. No electricity, no bulldozers, no power tools or chainsaws, but thousands of slaves directed by expert builders and craftsmen. In chapter 10, we see a diffusion of people groups, whereas in chapter 11, there is an attempt to unify the people, which is a refusal to obey God's command to populate the earth. Such unification is not what God wills. This story witnesses to the importance of pluralism and diversity, but it is God-ordained and God-designed pluralism and diversity. Webster defines diversity as differentiation, variety opposed to uniformity. In this sense of the word, diversity is a good thing created by God to avoid the boredom of utter uniformity. There is a kind of national, linguistic, and political unity that God does not will, and a national, linguistic, and political diversity that God does will. God wants people from every tribe, people, and nation to unite under his name. He doesn't want a godless national and political unity based on pride that seeks to dominate and control the masses. Dear friends, we need to understand that world unity is a curse. One world ruler would be a disaster. Craving to become one people all around the world only escalates the forces of evil. And God knows that, and so does Satan. Therefore, Satan is moving this world back to a one world, a one world, one religion, with one ruler who is identified in the Bible as the Antichrist. The stage is now being set around the world for this Antichrist to appear because we have different forms of idolatry spreading throughout the world, being aided by demons who are always the purveyor of lies and false doctrine, designing their own demon-inspired gods and worshiping in a condition of utter lostness. It is Satan who wants to produce a one world, one government, one religion under one ruler, the beast of Revelation. 
and someday his kingdom will bring the entire world under unilateral, unlimited power. His demons will fill the earth, and this is exactly what the Satanists want to happen, and exactly what Satan himself will bring about. Satanists are simply the devil's advanced publicity team. Satan desires a one-world government and a one-world leader through whom he will rule the world. And when this happens, the book of Revelation reveals the great horrors that will come. Now back to Genesis 11. There is also a pattern of man's sinfulness and God's response that we have seen so far as we have studied Genesis. Man rebels against God, and then God responds in grace. The rebellion at the Tower of Babel fits this pattern and prepares us to narrow down to the call of Abram in Genesis 12, which is God's next response to what sinful man has done. So, the Tower of Babel story becomes an icon of man's rebellion, even as the call of Abram becomes an icon of faith for the people of God. The sin and rebellion that we see here at the Tower of Babel is the same sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, wanting to be independent of God and seeking their own will. It is an attitude of wanting to live apart from God, driven by personal ambition and personal pride. It is the same sin and rebellion of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, and the same sin and rebellion as the ungodly in Noah's day when the flood came. Verse 4 might be called the first public declaration of humanism. Now, friends, what's the difference between Christian humanism and atheistic humanism? Simply that Christian humanism is a good and worthy endeavor, while atheistic humanism is rebellion against God. What is Christian humanism? Christian humanism is man seeking to glorify and worship God by becoming a full, complete, healed, obedient human being, conforming all his heart and mind to do the will of God. St. Irenaeus, the early church father in the 4th century, said, The glory of God is a man fully alive. What he meant by this needs to be clarified because non-Christian humanists have seized Irenaeus' quote to use it for their own purposes. To be a man fully alive means to be very tightly joined, cleaving to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means changing our status of non-being for his true being and entering into a vital union and communion with him. It is what St. Paul said, I am the slave of Christ Jesus, and it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. What kind of freedom? Freedom of unrestrained choice simply to do my own thing? or freedom to function as a man fully alive, that is, as a creature born again by the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being fully alive in Christ. Here is the life principle to remember. The more I surrender to Christ Jesus, who is himself the greatest possible good and the fullest and most complete man, 
the very incarnation of God, the freer I am to be who I am supposed to be. The more Christ becomes the master of my life, the more I internalize his moral demands and become transformed by him, the freer I am to be a child of God, to respond promptly to the call of the Heavenly Father. Christ himself, because of the Incarnation, is human freedom and divine truth in perfect harmony. This is the message of the Gospel. Behold all humanity. Behold the best that you can be is Jesus Christ. Come to him. Bow the knee to him. Give allegiance to him. Love him, serve him, and you will be truly free. In verse 9, the word Babel has two different meanings. Genesis 11.9 says that Babel means confusion, for at the Tower of Babel the Lord confused all the languages of the earth. The Babylonians used the word Babel to mean the gate of God. So the Babylonians said, we are the gate of God, and God said, no, you are confusion. You are man in rebellion against God, man in autonomy against God. This remains true throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, Babylon stands as man saying, we are the gate of God. And the Bible answering back, no, you are confusion. You are rebellion against me. What lessons can be learned from Genesis 11? One commentator says, Men are always trying to make themselves bigger than they are. Human pride is the root of all trouble. Men are continually saying, Let us build a city. Let us make a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. They are always trying by their own devices to reach the pinnacle of coveted importance and to sit triumphantly on top of their world. This passage in Genesis 11 also fully answers the question, how did so many different languages come about so that people cannot understand one another? The atheistic skeptics give the evolutionary response. Differences of language developed over long periods of time as the human race went through various phases of its existence. Children of the light who walk in God's truth, reply according to Genesis 11, 8, and 9. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth, and the Lord confused their language. Now why did the Lord do this? Because this building of the tower is what man began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Man's evil heart will always seek more and more evil. Without God's intervention, man will always turn downward to debauchery. This is because man's babbles are always lying pretensions. They are his attempt to substitute his own foundation of society for God's foundation. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house the family, the city, the nation, they labor in vain who build it. The doom of the tower must be regarded as a warning. 
St. Chrysostom, the early church father, says there are many people today who want to be remembered for their achievements by building splendid homes, by building great baths and porches and city streets. If you were to ask them why they toil and labor and lay out such great expense to no good purpose, you would hear nothing but that they want their memory to be preserved. They want to be remembered. This is the house belonging to so-and-so. But this is worthy not of commemoration, but of condemnation. For hard upon those words come other remarks equivalent to countless accusations. Belonging to so-and-so, the grasping miser, despoiler of widows and orphans. So such behavior is calculated not to earn remembrance, but to encounter unremitting accusations and to incite the tongues of onlookers to utter condemnation. But, continues Chrysostom, if you are anxious for an undying reputation, I will show you the way to succeed to provide an excellent name and great confidence in the age to come. How will you manage to be remembered day after day, even after passing from this life to the next? By giving away these goods of yours into the hands of the poor, letting go of precious stones, magnificent homes, and properties. How evil is the heart of man to build for himself and to make a name for himself and to grasp his own possessions tightly and not give them away for the benefit of others. We end on a positive note. God always takes the sin of man and turns it to good. We need to see that the praise that Jesus Christ receives from all the different languages created at the Tower of Babel is more beautiful and more wonderful because of its diversity than it would have been if there were only one language and one people to sing. Revelation 5 says that they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It was the spectacular sin on the plains of Shinar that gave rise to the multiplying of languages that ends in the most glorious praise to Christ from every language on the earth. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. Amen. You've been listening to the program Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson with God Debt Ministries.
You may reach us on the web at gaudetministries.org. That's G-A-U-D-E-T-E ministries.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with this word of encouragement from the prophet Isaiah. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not faint.